Welcome to the D.A.R.E. podcast, where it is all about helping people overcome anxiety and panic attacks. The D.A.R.E. app has over 1 million downloads and is free to download at DareResponse.com. Now, without further ado, here is the D.A.R.E. podcast. Hello, everyone. We are just getting the webinar going now, and uh, great to have you all here. We're going to be joined today by Dr. Ellen Vora and uh, she'll be with us shortly now and if you can hear me okay maybe just put a question in the chat so that we can hear that all right hi ellen hi barry hello great to to connect with you likewise here's michelle as well michelle Michelle. works with dare and uh, i asked her to join in and be part of the webinar as well so great, great to be that you're here. And thank you. I know you're a little bit under the weather today. So thanks for joining. Yeah, I think I, I'll be fine <laughs> if I look a little, you know, glassy eyed or something. That's that's what's going on in the background. But should great. be good. Yeah, I'm glad to make it work today. Good. And Michelle, you can hear us all fine. Okay, there. Hello. Yes. Hi. Michelle. Hi, Ellen. How Hi are there. you? Good. How are you doing? Good, good. So we've kicked off already and there's people. Um, putting in some chats there so we know they can hear us fine great um so maybe i will start of course with an introduction for you ellen um just so everybody knows your background dr ellen vora is a board certified psychiatrist acupuncturist and yoga teacher and she's the author of this book here the anatomy of stress she takes a functional medicine approach to mental health considering the whole person and addressing imbalance at the root does that sound right to you, Ellen? Yeah, <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. I thought before we get into the book, which you know I think is great. Um, I've been you can see I've bookmarks here, been going through it. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your background and why psychiatry, and then why did you make that shift to holistic psychiatry? Sure. Why psychiatry? I was a disenchanted medical school student. And I think someone could have saved me a lot of trouble by telling me everybody who is an English major, English literature major as an undergraduate, if they're in medical school, they go on to become a psychiatrist. So it could have saved me all the trouble of wondering, should I do orthopedic surgery or dermatology or emergency medicine? No. Um, I like to grope in the dark of the human condition and psychiatry is right where I belong. But that shift to a holistic approach really came from crisis. And there were two parallel crises happening for me in my training. One was that um, I was being taught how to masterfully medicate my patients, but I often found myself wondering, are they really better off? Am I really helping anybody? Do I see my patients leave after months, sometimes years of working with me and are they thriving? And so deep disenchantment around that, feeling like maybe everything I've learned here is for naught and isn't really helping people. And that was happening in parallel with the fact that I was a mess and everything about my physical health, my mental health was really falling apart at the seams. And I did not find relief in the sort of hallowed halls of conventional medicine. I really had to get creative and advocate for myself and figure out how to truly support my body and my mental health to be well. So all of that was somewhat of a head scratcher for me. And I realized there's a better way. And Mm -hmm. that sent me down the holistic path. And was anxiety a part of that mix? 
Anxiety was a part of it. It was not my most prominent uh, struggle, but it was certainly a part of it. Mm. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate or, um, or maybe have some kind of connection with that story. So we'll have some dealings with psychiatrists, you know, both positive and negative. So um, then that was probably in your 20s. And then you made that shift. Was it soon after that in to shift this holistic way of approaching it? And as I understand now from an interview I heard from you, you're, a lot of your time is spent now getting people off medication. Is that right? Or helping them wean off? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's a portion of my practice and it's not my favorite thing to do, but I see a need and um, there aren't a whole lot of practitioners educated about how to support it, willing to support it. So I'll often step up into that role as needed. Um, and I have somewhat of a system for how I support people with the de-prescribing process, if that's something that they want to explore. But the shift to holistic I mean, for me, I started studying other approaches to health and healing, things like Chinese medicine, acupuncture, Ayurveda, something called functional medicine, nutrition. And this was what all came together and, and helped me really think in a fundamentally different way about how to support my patients, which was root cause resolution rather than symptom suppression. And, and that's what helped me realize when I was putting someone on a medication, Sometimes that's incredibly helpful, as many people here, I'm sure, have experienced. We, we, everyone here has probably experienced the full range. We, we represent the full range. People who have been helped by meds, people who have been initially helped and eventually the effect wanes. Some people feel like they've tried everything under the sun and, and nothing is quite satisfactory. Um, but I felt like what I was doing was putting a Band-Aid there, which is sometimes a wonderful thing to pull somebody out of a deep hole. But I was never... Um, really addressing it fundamentally at the root. And that's where all of these holistic strategies came in and gave me techniques for understanding what's the underlying imbalance, how do we identify that and address it? Yeah. And it seems it's a growing area. If we Is that the right term, holistic psychiatry? We see, there seems to be a lot of interest in that area and that space now. Um, how do you define functional medicine? What is that exactly? Yeah, so like I just said, that term root cause resolution rather than symptom suppression, for me, that's the best description of what functional medicine is. It's, it's basically thinking um, a really classic example would be, let's say you had heartburn and you were thinking, okay, well, I'm going to go see my conventional doc. They're going to say, you have GERD, you have heartburn, and we'll give you an antacid. Your stomach will stop making as much stomach acid, and then this won't irritate your esophagus anymore. Problem solved except we didn't actually solve the fundamental problem. We patched it up. And not only that, but in certain ways, that treatment can exacerbate the underlying problem. So in functional medicine, we would ask why. We would say, well, why are you having heartburn? Is there some kind of increased intra-abdominal pressure? Okay, if so, why is that happening? Are you pregnant? Are you obese? Do you have something called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine? creating a kind of gas and pressure pushing up on the stomach acid. So you want to identify the root and address it at that level and then problem solved. And you don't actually even need to take the antacid. Mm. And then that brings us up to this book, your latest book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. And, um, and thank you for mentioning Dare in it. I came across it in one of the pages, which is great to see. Um, 
tell us a little bit about this book. How, first of all, how did it come about? Yeah, and I mean, thank you for writing, Dare. I think it's just awe-inspiring how many people you've helped. You've helped me. I was so inspired by your book and felt so lucky to be able to incorporate those ideas in this book. Um, but yeah, I love the way you say your latest book. It's the first, is it? <laughs> of, of someone who's written many books. My only book, yeah. but my first book. Um, it came to be. <laughs> that's true. Um, it's it's two main factors. One is that I was certainly noticing a pattern, which was that everyone who was coming into my office, everyone who was engaging with me on social media platforms, they were struggling with anxiety. It's unmistakable these days. It's, it's such a fever pitch. People are struggling so much. So I certainly saw the need. But then I really like to treat anxiety. I sort mm. of harbor that secret. It's something I find delightful to treat. I feel like there is a lot of low-hanging fruit. There mm. are a lot of quick wins. And you can relieve an enormous amount of human suffering relatively easily. So for me that, you know, I felt like, oh, well, I have so many ideas about how to support people with anxiety. Let me get this into a book and put it out into the world. And, and hopefully it helps some people. Yeah, Michelle, I think we can relate to that, isn't it? The, the idea of the low hanging fruit and the quick wins. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful to see people shift a change in perspective and then suddenly their world opens up and they start right. to win back freedoms again. Yeah. yeah, and it's usually um, it's usually after the opposite of everything they've tried so hard. And I mean, Ellen, you you said the word struggle, right? The difference between fluctuating levels of anxiety and struggling with fluctuating levels of anxiety, which is really what Dare is, right? We focus on, right? There are things that may contribute, like GERD, to fluctuating levels of anxiety. But a lot of people are trying to get at those fluctuating levels of anxiety, which is continuing their fight. Of those fluctuating levels of anxiety, which is where that weird loop starts. That's right. Yeah. I mean, resistance to reality in general is a really good recipe for suffering. And <laughs> I'll butcher Great the quote. Line. I don't even remember who said it, but you know, there's a, a psychiatrist of the days of yore who basically said, good mental health is a radical commitment to being with life on life's terms, exactly as it is. And actually in letting go of our resistance to it, as you guys are the masters of, um, this is actually what can ease our relationship to the challenges in our lives. So Ellen, in the book, you talk about kind of two core areas of anxiety. You've got the, uh, what you call false anxiety and then true anxiety. Can you give us an overview of those two areas and maybe we'll, we'll discuss some of that. Yeah. And I think now about seven months into the book tour, I'm contemplating wordsmithing and revising my terms the next time I, I put anything on paper. Tell um, us why. Think, Is it because yeah, of the word story false? Story of our lives. Because <laughs> of our lives. Which, you know, which my agent, my editor were like, you know, people aren't going to like this term false anxiety. And I was like, go forward, forge ahead. Um, and I've come to regret that. But basically, false anxiety is not to invalidate the very real suffering. Mm. It's to point to the fact that there's a straightforward physical basis for this type of anxiety, a straightforward path out. So the central thesis to the book is that rather than thinking of anxiety, I think we're similar in this way, the nomenclature system, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, with or without agoraphobia, OCD, and so on and so forth, which for me doesn't actually steer management in my practice in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. It's kind of designed to gatekeep certain invasive interventions. It's to standardize our diagnoses for clinical research. That's not what I'm working with day to day when I'm seeing patients. A much more meaningful categorization for me 
is to think of anxiety as either what I call false anxiety or avoidable anxiety. It's based in the physical body. It's usually related to something that has tripped the body into a stress response. And we experience that subjectively as anxiety or even panic, but there's a mm. physical basis and it's avoidable. We can identify the cause of imbalance, address it and eliminate unnecessary suffering. And then on the other hand, we have what I would call true anxiety, which is not something to pathologize. It's not something to suppress and it's not something that we could gluten-free or decaf coffee our way out of. It's, it's our inner compass, really. It's our truth nudging us to slow down, get still and pay attention. It usually has a call to action baked into it, identifying some area in our lives where we know that we're out of alignment. We are due for a course correction. And it can be on a very big scale. It can mean we know that there's some kind of activism cause where we need to step up onto the front lines. It can be on a much more personal scale. Like we know we should be calling our grandma more frequently. It mm -hmm. can be anything in between. But it's these inner truths that we steamroll over in our busy day-to-day -day lives. Where something doesn't sit right. That's right. Yeah. So if we go back to the false anxiety, because uh, I know people will have lots of questions about that area. And um, I suppose it's one of these, you know, it comes up a lot. Of course, Michelle, we see it coming up a lot with people, you know, wondering about why, why am I mm -hmm. experiencing mm -hmm. these sensations? Where did it come from and all of that? But you talk very well about the different space, the different areas of diet, hormones, sleep. Could you maybe elaborate on some of those? Yeah, with patients and in the book, I even have something I call a false mood inventory. And it's just a list designed to cue us when we're in those moments of peak anxiety and everything can feel so overwhelming and heavy and doom and gloom to just glance at a list and have it remind us, you know, without invalidating, it can be like, yes, things really are hard. Your stressors are real. The challenges are valid. And is it possible that you're hungry and Gosh, you need a snack? And mm -hmm. so when our blood sugar crashes, the design of the body is to induce a stress response. And this can feel synonymous with anxiety. So it can help us just know it, it's not taking away from what bothers us. It just makes us a bit more resilient in the face of it. Um, and I, I noticed I went back to your book in preparation for our conversation. It was really nice to get, I listened on audible. So your lovely voice in my ears, talking me through <laughs> these steps. and. I noticed something that I don't think I'd even noticed my first read, which was that your first panic experience, which I think happened in church. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It was the morning after you had been out drinking yeah. with the boys. Yeah, yeah. And this is a classic case of false anxiety where um, basically, and we can go into the kind of nerd out on the science behind this, but after we've been drinking there is a neurotransmitter effect in our brain that's very conducive to anxiety and that can be the kindling. And then it sets you on a course where once you've had that first panic attack, then as you put so well, it becomes fear of fear itself and it gets yeah. us stuck in a cycle. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of where dare comes in. It helps with that fear of fear. So to stop that fearing of sensations, fearing of the anxiety itself. But let's let's stay with the um, let's nerd out a little bit yeah, on the science. So I've heard you talk about GABA, the effects of GABA and, you know, how 
we're so thrown out of our natural rhythms in life by the way we're not sleeping well and the way we're not eating well, that we're just not allowing our body, I suppose, to um, rest and digest the way it should. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, let's nerd out a bit maybe on alcohol, sleep, mm. perhaps a bit on the gut health. Yeah. And then, you know, you stop me when I've gone on too deep into the weeds, but uh, we can talk about nutrition, caffeine, things like that as well. Well, alcohol, um, not the conversation any of us wants to hear because it's sort of like, oh, keeping my blood sugar stable, sleeping better. That sounds nice, but cutting out alcohol, caffeine, like we, we don't want to start with that. So I don't know why I'm going there first, but I think that just to point out that um, when we drink, part of the reason we like it is that it rushes our brain with a particular neurotransmitter called GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid. And that's our primary inhibitory neurotransmitter of the central nervous system, which is very sciencey speak for this is the neurotransmitter that pulls us out of an anxiety spiral. It's the one that helps us feel calm and okay. It's a nice one. And alcohol rushes our brain with it. And if the story ended there, I would say alcohol is a terrific treatment for anxiety. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end there because our brain, our body is less concerned with whether or not we are relaxed and at ease and confident. It's concerned with our survival. So it sees all of this GABA and it worries that should a leopard come around the corner, we would be too buzzed to care. Too chilled out. Yeah. <laughs> and so we might be in danger. Um, and so it furiously attempts to restore homeostasis or that original state of balance. And in the case of alcohol, it does this by converting the GABA to a very different neurotransmitter called glutamate. And that's one of our primary excitatory neurotransmitters. And for, for me, this accounts for that um, when we've had a few drinks at dinner and then at two or three mm. in the morning, we wake up, our heart is racing, our thoughts are racing, we're agitated, and then we proceed to toss and turn and have lousy sleep for the remainder of the night. My belief is that the mechanism underlying that is the GABA to glutamate conversion. Yeah. And that's where, you know, in Ireland, we call it the fear. The next day, it's the anxiety, the fear creeps in. And everyone who's had a bad hangover is familiar with that anxiety that comes from drinking too much. Yeah. But I think people who suffer from anxiety disorders are just extra sensitive. So all of this heightened arousal or heightened sensitivity causes more. Absolutely. At some point, we should touch upon sort of how how I think of the people that do have heightened sensitivity and how I think of that as more of a superpower than a liability. Mm -hmm. um, but and, and so we had the alcohol. What about caffeine? Does that have that same cycle? So you get the nice buzz, the kind of dopamine, and then you're crashing. Yeah, I'm not making any friends here today. It's like, <laughs> you've taken away my alcohol. Now we're talking about coffee. Um, mm. Coffee, not an inherently bad substance. I'm not here to shame caffeine. In many ways, it's an inherently good substance. It contains magnesium, antioxidants, associated with decreased rates of type 2 diabetes. Um, I think we just need to recognize that there's a lot of bio-individuality when it comes to our caffeine tolerance. Mm -hmm. And one person might be a rapid metabolizer. They can have a double espresso after dinner, fall asleep a couple hours later, no problem. And if that's you, must be nice to be you. And some of us, had a coffee last week and we're still interrupting people and jittery and wired and, and kind of, you know, acting like we're on cocaine. And so if you are sensitive to caffeine, I think it just behooves us to be honest with ourselves about that and make a couple strategic shifts. Maybe we nudge it a little earlier in the day because it has a long half-life and that way it sets us up for better sleep. 
Maybe we splice in some decaf, like have a half calf instead of a full calf. Because often it's the ritual, the smell and yeah. the taste and mm -hmm. flirting with the tattooed barista. It's these other aspects of our coffee habit that really give us much of the benefit. And do we need quite so much milligramage of caffeine? The last I have, thing I'll, I've tried hard to be a coffee drinker because of all of that. I love the smell. I love the ritual, but I'm just too wired on coffee and my stomach gets thrown out of whack and just nervous, just jittery on coffee. Michelle, are you, how are you on coffee? I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> but if I have more than the one in the morning and the one in the afternoon, and I've had, if I have the one too late in the afternoon, like you kind of just have to know your body and what's helpful for your body and what's not helpful for your body. And if I have more than two, I know I'll get that way if, if I have three, which yeah. happened Sunday, we went out to dinner for my mom's birthday and we had a coffee after dinner and I could tell my body's not used to that. And so I kind of just expected it at this point. Back in the day, that might have thrown me for a loop, but it was, oh yeah, I can have this much coffee. Anything more than that really affects my body. So I just drink a little bit less. So yeah, it's that same sort of same sort of approach. And you know, it always surprises me how um, people who suffer from anxiety haven't made the connection with caffeine. You know, how they still kind of go, oh really? You know, it makes me anxious. You know, that they haven't put two and two together and thought, you know this could be keeping me in a state of high sensitization. Yeah, I mean, you talk about uh, low-hanging fruit, but I think just to kind of represent the people that are sitting here with a very intense caffeine habit and a lot of anxiety and, and feeling a little bit like, hey, like, you know, I feel attacked. Um, I think it's really understandable that we don't put two and two together. And part of this has to do with the fact that caffeine, um, it's a real drug. It has a real withdrawal. And when we're in the habit of consuming caffeine, we wake up in caffeine withdrawal. So nothing feels quite so good as scratching the itch of withdrawal with the withdrawn substance itself. And so coffee feels like our one true friend in the world and our salvation in the morning because it solves a problem that it caused. And so we think this is not a bad agent in my life. This is a good agent in my life, but we have to decouple a bit. It corrects its own withdrawal but it's also ginning up our stress response and potentially contributing to anxiety and contributing to lower quality sleep at night, which in its own right contributes to anxiety. Yeah. Well, maybe let's do that. Move on to sleep then. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on sleep? So many thoughts on sleep. <laughs> I think that um, culturally we're at least now at a moment where we want to sleep. We weren't like maybe 10, 15 years ago. It was like, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Sleep is for the weak and the lazy. I'm Superman and I only need four or five hours of sleep. And I think we've actually experienced a cultural shift. Now we recognize sleep is vital. It's important. It's our secret weapon. So we're doing everything right. And yet sleep still eludes us. And that's so frustrating and demoralizing. And I think that we need a slightly different strategy. My premise is that your body wants to sleep. It knows how to sleep but we do need to give it the right inputs and not irritate the system. This really all comes down to protecting a healthy circadian rhythm, which is cued most of all by light. And light makes us release cortisol. We feel awake and alert. Darkness allows us to release melatonin and we get sleepy. And on the proverbial savanna of evolution, this design was foolproof and yeah. there was no way to mess it up. And in modern life, there's no way to protect it, honestly, because we are indoors during the day, we're working from home, maybe not even going outside in the morning. 
And then after the sun sets, we're surrounded by the psychedelic light show of modern life. And um, all of that is suppressing our melatonin and making it very hard for us to get sleepy. So my solutions here is you start first thing in the morning and you get outside. You wanna take what's called a circadian walk and you're getting actual sunshine into your actual eyeballs, not blocked by sunglasses or blue blocking lenses on our glasses. And that starts the clock so that we can feel awake. And it also ticks in the background so that we can get sleepy at night. And then what we do after sunset to protect our melatonin release, there's a definitive solution, which is to move off the grid, homestead, raise chickens, defenestrate your phone into the ocean. If you're up for that, that's a great strategy. Anything short of that, I really like have a prop. Um, I like blue blocking glasses. I think oh. that this is a really nice intervention. These are particularly <laughs> snazzy, right? I look like I'm ready to do metallurgy. Sci-fi. <laughs> but these block all blue spectrum light from getting into the eyes. And that protects our ability to secrete melatonin, even in the modern environment with all of this light pollution after sunset. Mm. There's one other hack there, which is just to not bring the phone into the bedroom at night, which um, can feel hard to do before you've started. It's, you know, it feels like this is my alarm clock. This is what I read before bed. This is my lifeline and my comfort. Um, but I encourage people to pilot it, try it for a few nights, see if that doesn't help protect your sleep. I find that across a number of different pathways, it's very supportive of better sleep to not have our phone right there. I'm kind of mindful as well for people listening that sometimes people can feel overwhelmed with things or actions to take. And it just feels like, oh, here we go. Here's another list of things I won't do or I'll never end up doing. In, and and we've, we're kind of touching on different areas, diet and I want to sleep. In all of these different areas, though, which do you find the most effective? Would it be the area of sleep or diet where people get the best bang for their book? Barry, I'm so glad that you brought that up and, and put it in this gentle, supportive way. I have this effect, right? I come in like, you know, bull in a China shop and Mr. Fix-It. And it's like, well, here are 500 things you can do to support your anxiety. And anyone who's feeling really overwhelmed by anxiety is just feeling like, oh, I'm, you know, I can't do all of this. I can't boil the whole ocean at once. And, and so we end up doing nothing. The way I propose in my book is to think of this as a buffet and you're not attempting to do all of this. You pick maybe one thing initially that feels accessible, not too intimidating, not overwhelming. Maybe it's not quitting caffeine and alcohol as your first step. Maybe it's an earlier bedtime or getting a pair of blue blocking glasses. And you just start to make incremental improvements to your anxiety levels and your energy and your mood and your sleep quality. And as you make improvements, the next intervention can feel a little bit more within reach and a little bit easier. Um, and even if you only make a couple adjustments and feel a little bit of improvement, this is also a great place to be at. And I think most impactful, it really varies person to person. I love to start with sleep. I think it impacts all mental health issues across the board. Yeah. It feels good, it's free, it's a really nice place to start. Um, but if we had to throw all of this away and just focus on one thing, it's actually community. Mm. And it's, it's just to prioritize making sure we're connecting with the people that we care about who help us feel seen and witnessed and understood and loved. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. Michelle, it's interesting, isn't it, talking about like the, the physiological reasons as well or things that we can look after because um, all of this really is about living a better life in general you're going to 
be happier, healthier person if you get to bed early, if you right, eat the right stuff, you know, right. cut back on the alcohol, the caffeine, uh, the sugar. Um, so I suppose people shouldn't feel overwhelmed like this is, and it's specific to anxiety. It's just that broader way of living in a more wholesome, natural way, isn't it? Right. With the right mindset for all of this, because just for all of my darers who are, I'm guessing, in the background going, but Michelle says it's this, but Alice says it's this. Well, <laughs> do I do I have to, how much milligrams of caffeine did she say? And everybody's taking copious notes. That's so like the dare piece is me now taking everything that's been given as a great example for an for your overall improvement of your well-being as must or else. Okay. That's I, I don't even want to talk because between Barry and you have such a nice voice too, Ellen. <laughs> I feel like I shouldn't even talk because I know what I sound like. And I'm trying to sound like you guys, but I just can't do it. But it's our our the the those who are most stuck are using all of these great, fabulous suggestions as weapons to get rid of, rid of rather than tools to teach you how to let go of, tools to teach you to say, wow, wow, I really haven't been eating well. Oh, my sleep, I am going to bed at seven o'clock in the morning and I'm waking up whenever and I'm not really taking great care of myself and my body's kind of a little bit out of whack, let's just say. And let's try and do certain things that are good for my overall well-being. Where we get stuck is we'll have people that will take it as a um, ritualistic, a mm. must or else. Do you find that too? Um, where people Obsessively. get stuck in your process? Yes. Like, and it's it's almost that mindset towards nutrition and diet and health and sleep that is perpetuating the cycle of the fight of anxiety. I think there's a commonality to all of this, which is actually that we don't trust ourselves to navigate these choices. And I think that's part of what I always want to impart is um, I'll throw out a bunch of ideas and suggestions, but you're the arbiter, you're the person mm -hmm. navigating and sort of the guru of your own well-being. You know when a change feels empowering, feels accessible and, and feels exciting. Like I'm going to make this adjustment and be a little bit less anxious and I'm excited about that. And you also know for yourself, this change is overwhelming and I have a tendency to get obsessive and perfectionistic about these things. And that's just pouring gas on the flames. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to just always hand over to everyone who's trying to navigate all of these different strategies, right? We're all just trying to help. And I think that mostly you want to just also just always check back in with yourself and say, well, what does this resonate for me? Or bless and release. It's not, it's not resonance. Yeah. And we often talk about, you know, even applying dare, apply lightly, you know, don't force these things. As you say, I see if it works for you and you feel that shift and you go, great. Yeah, that's working. And you keep you keep at it, but uh, not to be so regimental about things that, you know, for example, if you have a cup of coffee that, you know, you've thrown everything out of whack and you're going to have lots of anxiety because of that. But just to be playful almost with these things. So you you find, you know, your your groove and. Uh, there's one reflection on the false anxiety piece, which I think it's actually, it's, I think that there's a commonality between our books, which is that someone who's really suffering significant clinical anxiety can hear something like the dare approach or hear something like the false anxiety approach. And it, it almost feels insulting and people don't trust that it could be helpful. They're like, mm -hmm. well, 
that might be helpful for somebody with really mild anxiety, but mm-hmm. I have real debilitating clinical anxiety. So this is just, this is too soft. This is silly. It's not helpful for me. And I feel like we, we can feel that way until we've implemented it. And then we realize this is actually quite effective and in certain ways for a lot of my patients, more effective with fewer side effects than the so-called more hard interventions. And, and I think that I experienced part of the problem for myself when I'm, I'm sort of like all about false anxieties and aware of causes of imbalance in my own health and my own life. And I was in Europe this summer and I do have a tendency to, um, go back to my on again, off again relationship to cappuccino when I'm in Europe. Mm. And so I was drinking coffee and then I get back to the States and I'm tapering myself off of caffeine, but quite gradually. And I was at, I was on vacation. It had to be it was, Italy. It must've been Italy you were in. Where, it was, where it was France, but yeah, same France, idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it was called a latte. And I think yeah. that um, I was really irritable when I got back and I was snapping at my husband and I was kind of just didn't recognize myself. And, um, and my friend lovingly pointed out, she's like, could it be the coffee? And I just, I remember feeling so insulted and invalidated by that because I was like, no, I'm justified in how mad I am. I'm justified in finding this situation to be intolerable. Um, I felt so justified in everything I was upset about. And indeed our challenges, our stressors are very real. But sometimes these sources of false anxiety just make us unable to be resilient in the face of it. I yeah. did end up going off the coffee and <laughs> I could keep my cool quite a bit more. And so I had the, the lesson in my own body. It helps yes. put it in perspective sometimes too, that it's not always anxiety's here. Now I have to stare at anxiety because anxiety is the problem, right? This comes up a lot. Well, I have a lot of questions come in about hormones and as my hormone levels are fluctuating and changing throughout the month or throughout my life, it's right the week before you get your period or other hormonal factors that might play in or other physiological things that may happen. But it, it kind of helps to take a step back and say, oh yeah, that's right this changes in my body can affect this other change in my body. I am having fluctuating levels of anxiety. I'm also noticing my mood is fluctuating. My energy level is fluctuating because it's a fluctuating system rather Mm. than my anxiety is up problem, right? Anxiety is up problem. Better do something about this. It helps you take a step back and say, oh yeah, sometimes we can't always find the reason. Sometimes it doesn't always make sense. It's just sort of here and we get stuck in the whys, but having a practical why, oh yeah, I had five Red Bulls for lunch. That's why I'm a little (laughs) irritable. It helps it make a little bit more sense and give some context to it. Yeah, Michelle, I think you raised such an important point, especially with something like hormones, where um, why I wasn't taught this in junior high, I don't know. But at this point, I track my cycle so that I can glance at this app and know, oh, I'm feeling tearful, irritable, tender, raw, and mad at everybody. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting my period in two days. Mm -hmm. And I used to just you know, unbeknownst to me, go in and out of that and just think everything is terrible and I can't handle it. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually quite empowering to to be grounded in, well, here's a potential physiologic um, way to make sense of how I'm feeling. It doesn't change what we're bothered by, but it does just give us some perspective and it can pull us out of a spiral in that moment. And I think that this gets even more complex in the ramp up and ramp offs of puberty, perimenopause, Mm -hmm. where we're sort of predictably unpredictable with our hormones. 
and then the postpartum anxiety as well another difficult time for people mm -hmm. yeah that's a big topic that I go into in my book because that's near and dear to my heart and um I think that I suppose I have a little bit of a, a slightly unorthodox view on postpartum anxiety. I incorporate everything that's already the established understanding of this, the sleep deprivation, the role transition, all of the pressures on new moms. There's so much that goes into this anxiety. But I think one piece of it that we're typically or commonly overlooking is that we are very nutritionally depleted at that point. We just grew a baby birthed a baby, potentially lost quite a lot of blood. We might be feeding a baby from our own body and we gave all of our best nutrients to that baby. That's the triage system in the body. And so we are just depleted and under the best of nutritional circumstances, it takes time to replete those nutritional stores, but we live in a food landscape that's nutritionally bankrupt. And so we're not even under the best of circumstances. So I think a, a contributor to so much postpartum anxiety is that our poor brains are just mm -hmm. running on empty, trying to function and get through the day, but they don't have the vitamins, minerals, and nutrients to function properly. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that before, that idea. And the solution it makes is, is tricky. It, it makes sense. It's, it's a hard one to solve because the solution is eat a diverse array of nutrient dense foods when you have mm. no time, no energy. And so no I think personal we, chef. Yeah. No personal chef. We need a culture of how we support new parents and, you know, neighbors bringing over food, meal delivery services. I think we just need to step up and realize that we want to throw really juicy, good nutrition at a postpartum mom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, kind of along similar lines too, because I know we have a lot of people that send in messages on, um, long COVID or having higher levels of anxiety after COVID, or let's just say any virus in general, where, and again, same trying to normalize it, like your body systems are a little off because there you have a virus, so you're fighting off some infection or something like that, that your body's in a heightened state for a reason. We just tend to get very good fighters that fight our own heightened state. And it's another thing that helps put you into context of like, allow yes there could be reasons that are contributing to this heightened state physiologically and i'm gonna drop the fight piece of that of oh yeah i just had a virus and even though i may not be um obviously sick my nose might not be runny anymore i might on the surface feel better it takes time afterwards for your body to sort of come back to i mean i'm not a medical doctor i'm just speaking from layman's terms here but um you know, it's, we, we are very good at, well, the virus is gone. I should be feel fine. And then we find all the nuances of where we, I'm feeling more anxious. And then we perseverate on anxious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this is just even putting aside the fact that it's terrifying to go through a pandemic and there's a lot of collective grief and collective trauma. There's existential fears and uncertainties, mm -hmm. constant change. That's its own thing. But even to just nerd out on one detail of this that you bring up, um, this is a gnarly virus. And we have very commonly dysregulated immune systems in modern life. This is related to the fact that we take antibiotics and we don't have a diverse ecosystem of bacteria in our gut. And we have all these inflammatory agents in our diet. So we're dysregulated. We are faced with a gnarly virus. And a lot of us get into a chronic state of inflammation afterward. And this has actually always been a competing hypothesis to explain states like depression and anxiety is um, competing with that monoamine hypothesis, the one that says 
It's your genetic chemical imbalance. It's your serotonin. I don't love that hypothesis. It feels like such a heavy destiny and identity. And that doesn't jive with what I've witnessed in my own body and my practice that Mm -hmm. this is a temporary state. This can change. But we've always had this other hypothesis called the cytokine or inflammatory hypothesis. It's actually more robustly supported by the medical literature. And it shows us that when we have cytokines or inflammatory markers circulating around our body, those do indeed impact our threat detection centers in our brain. And surprise, our brain feels under threat. And so it can contribute to anxiety, um, not necessarily because there's something to be afraid of, but this is just a quirky aspect of the human body is that inflammation makes us feel uneasy, depressed, on edge. And so I think it's so helpful to, to just be armed with that knowledge as we head through COVID. And even if we recover and we're feeling better, if we're feel, still feeling a little rough around the edges for a while, that's very understandable. It's logical. It's a part of the recovery process. And just for people um, who are wondering then, yeah, so where does DARE sit in with all this? I really think DARE is that piece of, let's say, for example, you're run down with the flu, you're exhausted, you're not feeling well. And there is that piece where you kind of take back control and you say, okay, well, I have a ability to respond to this in a new way, to this way that I'm feeling. So I'm feeling all of this nervous arousal. I'm feeling this discomfort. Now I can either choose to, you know, throw fuel on the fire and make it worse by scaring myself more, or I can choose a different response, a more empowering response where I'm deciding not to scare myself so much and just seeing it for what it is. Nervous arousal, the stress cycle, and um, sensitization that will pass. And when we stop fueling it, we really help it not to become a disorder, an anxiety disorder that people get stuck in for years and years and years. Precisely. I, I find our approaches are really beautifully complementary. It's basically looking at how we fuel the, the cycles of our anxiety from two different angles yeah. and sort of the things that are contributing to states of physiologic imbalance, we can reduce some of those, not drive ourselves crazy doing that, but little nudges, little strategic shifts. And then some of it is inevitable. It's going to happen. This is life. And then what we do on the other end to step out of that loop and, and arrive at a different dynamic with that nervous arousal. Right. Michelle, you you've got a good um, image on Instagram, isn't it? Or one of the social platforms where you've got like a small flame and a big flame, isn't it? Where you oh, talk yeah, about yeah. that. Yeah. Fanning I'm running out of images though, guys. Sorry. I'm running low on my cartoons. 600 something <laughs> of them. I'm running out of ideas. But yeah, does everybody on the chat, do you see how this can be used together rather than a, well, well, is it a physiological thing or is it a dare thing? How do we use dare? You use dare for all of it on how I, you can do certain things to help different fluctuations of how you feel. Dare is an overall attitude on how I treat how I feel. And so if I can go like this and eliminate, I don't know, a pain in my head, I'm going to tell you to do this and it eliminates the pain in your head. But if the pain doesn't go away and you're constantly like, is it gone? Well, what about this? What about magnesium? Is it gone? Is it gone? And that constant checking and fighting you're you're now using survival energy to continue survival behaviors you don't fight away your fight or flight response and so something might have stoked the flame okay maybe a stressor maybe a traumatic event maybe a medical condition maybe diet maybe something here comes the flame 
And now there might be certain things that, you know, oh yeah, that's right. Drinking a million coffees a day, not super helpful. Also doing this to the flame. Is it gone yet? Is it gone yet? Is it gone yet? <laughs> Anybody ever reassurance staring at it? Like that's the behavior that keeps it going. Even if you're using these really good suggestions with a must or else approach that would be using good, helpful suggestions to also keep yourself stuck. It is, a, it's a hard thing to explain. And the, everybody in the chat, do you, under, do you understand that? Like constantly trying a, let's try this and see if it worked. Like I had this conversation with somebody about sleep. They did some sleep program that was a whole lot of money and they thought they got scammed and they were very upset by the whole thing. And I said, explain to me what you learned. And it was circadian rhythm, certain diets, when to eat protein, how to set the temperature in your room. I said, that sounds fabulous, right? I'm not a good sleeper. I don't have anxiety paired with sleep. My anxiety paired up with something else. So if I don't sleep, my story about sleep is, mm, that's my natural automatic story. But this person's automatic story was, must try this and let's put the dial to this temperature and using them almost as weapons to then force sleep or fight yourself to sleep to check to see if it worked. And so it it's these are fabulous, wonderful, super helpful suggestions when taken without a must or else mindset added into that. And that's the dare piece of like, All right, let's try this weighted blanket. And you go to, and you lay down and you wake up and you say, oh, well, look at that. Oh, I seem to have a pretty good sleep. And there's not a desperation attached to it. There's not a, um, um, a force attached to it. It's a little bit lighter. It's a little bit more of like, step back and let's just try this. Does this make sense? Am I explaining myself clearly? I think I love the way you're explaining this. And a really beautiful illustration of this is something I, I point out in my book, which is called middle sleep, which is somewhat of a dare adjacent concept mm -hmm. where um, basically humans have a normal physiologic wake up between two symmetric blocks of sleep. So if you're someone who needs eight hours of sleep and you go to bed at 10 PM, you're likely waking up at 2 AM and your body probably wants you to use the restroom, have a sip of water, roll to the other side. And because we're not aware of the existence of middle sleep, we swoop in with a narrative. We look at the clock. We see, oh God, it's 2 a.m. Oh no, I'm up in the middle of the night. Oh no, this is going to be a bad night of sleep. And tomorrow's going to be a lousy day. And, 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 and um, I encourage people to just remind themselves like I joke, like remember that blonde doctor whose name you forgot, like she mentioned middle sleep, that's, this is that. And so you basically remember in that moment, this is middle sleep. This is normal physiologic wake up. You try not to let your eyes see light because that can suppress your melatonin. So you do like the squinty shuffle to the restroom. Mm -hmm, you don't mm -hmm. pull out your phone, but you reassure yourself. I'm going to fall back asleep in five, 10, 20, 30 minutes. And it's actually that reassurance in the same way that yeah. that narrative we tell ourselves becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Similarly, when we can feel reassured that this was normal and we're going to fall back asleep, that itself helps us ease back into sleep. It seems to be a thing as we get older as well, that that middle sleep thing becomes more apparent, isn't it? And, and you particularly hear about elderly people waking very often in the night. 
it's a fact of life that we sleep less efficiently as we get older. Um, there's a hormonal component for women as they go through perimenopause and postmenopausally. Um, there's there's so much getting older is not fun, but it doesn't, you know, we can still function. And, and in, in many ways, I think it's actually a call to action to build more spaciousness into our lives, not live on such a, I need to sleep efficiently this block of eight hours a night but to actually take it as an opportunity to say, well, I'm older. Can I call the shots and have a little bit more leeway um, opportunity for rest throughout the day? So Ellen, we've kind of jumped over a few different topics. Is there anything we missed that you want to raise? Um, anything else that you think is important? Maybe helpful to, and I'm sure there's good questions in the chat, but the, the concept of completing the stress cycle, which maybe you've had someone on who, who talks about this concept, um, but I find that that's pretty helpful and empowering. It, it's basically just recognizing that our stress can behave like a cycle with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if you look at animals, many of them have a way of shaking after an acute life or death stressor. And that mm -hmm. seems to be a way that they discharge excess adrenaline and it communicates to their nervous system, the threat has passed. And I like to employ this in my daily life and to encourage my patients to do this is to have some practice daily that helps us complete the stress cycle. And that can look like so many different things. And for one person, it can be journaling or one person it's exercise, someone else it might be a shaking practice and someone else it's just having a good cry or a good cuddle. Um, yeah. These are all terrific ways to complete the stress cycle. But you basically recognize that we need to press control, alt delete on our stress cycle from time to time to make sure that we're communicating to our nervous system the threat mm. has passed. It's once again safe to be in my body. I and shake. that's where exercise comes in as well, doesn't it? Because exercise yeah. is a bit of that release. Absolutely. I, I do the shaking practice, which is by far and away the weirdest one. Um, very hippy dippy, uh, but very effective. And I put on this shamanic drum music, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit, um, which helps sync up the brain with a theta wave pattern. And that is itself relaxing. And I just shake for a couple minutes. And I think that not only does it excavate stuck stress, but I let my body call the shots rather than doing what looks normal or appropriate or cool. I yeah. do whatever my body feels like doing. And that is inherently therapeutic because we go through our lives ignoring what our body wants to do if it doesn't look normal. And we're trying did, um, to not shake, right? And yes. so that's that's really like run towards. I'm just trying to tie that into the people are like, what? What do you think I have to? What? What's the theta thing I have to do? <laughs> it's if my body's already shaking, mm. let it shake. Go mm. ahead, shake more. So those are the Michelle words that you guys might hear me say, right? It's oh, I'm shaking. Shaking's not something I need to fight either. I can either let myself shake right kind of like after a near miss car accident when you get the whoosh and you're left with this you're left with mm -hmm. this and then what we tend to do is calm down calm down calm down calm down calm down you trying to calm you don't calm yourself down you allow your body to calm itself down and so whatever it is your body's doing let it do it or go do more of it so guys, that's the dare stuff tied into what we're hearing here of, oh, I'm shaking. Let's crank it up. Let's shake, girl, shake. And allow your body, like kind of like step out of your way. The crisis, the fight is over. The gazelle is allowed to shake because it, it, it's, it's not running from anything anymore. Yeah. It's and allowed to feel that feeling. 
it's it's helpful for us to just name it, which is that not only is the shaking not a problem, that is the wisdom of your body giving mm. you a somatic release, which I think is actually quite helpful. So it's not something to fear and not something to suppress or dislike. It's something to lean into. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel exactly the same way about crying, which I think we're due for a cultural rebranding of. And basically mm -hmm. we cry, we apologize, we feel ashamed, like we're a burden. Mm -hmm. And we try to make it as small as possible. We suck it back in. But this is the wisdom of our body giving us a much needed opportunity for a release. And can we dive into it? Let it be complete. Let it be big. It's the crying is not the problem. And in much like with every step, the dare principles, it's really our resistance to it that creates suffering. And this is actually a beautiful opportunity to have a big catharsis. Mm -hmm. You guys and hear that? That's a, that question comes in a lot. Is it okay to cry? Like you had a, you're trying, you're already crying. You're crying and trying to not cry and fighting a feeling to stop a cry. And it's, it's more resistance as opposed to nobody has ever posted. Is it okay to laugh? Is it okay to laugh when you find something really funny? You just laugh. So we just don't let ourselves cry. It's a natural thing to do in response to something sad. This is what your body does when it's sad. It's, how we release sad i see in the question there someone was asking what was that music it was shamanic drumming wasn't it ellen that you yeah i can there. i can put the track i use in the chat if that'd be helpful yeah absolutely. Um, let's see and if you're not into shamanic drumming you can use taylor swift <laughs> <Do you> remember... <laughs> that's exactly what i was gonna say myself and michelle uh, did taylor swift in um, australia we were launching the dare book down there and we did shake it out as the start song yeah when I lead shaking rituals in corporate settings, instead of using shamanic drum music, I use Taylor Swift. Shake it out. <laughs> you really? Yeah. That's exactly what I do. Yeah. It's a perfect alternative. Isn't it? Yeah. Get the crowd moving. Yeah. Um, great. Well, we are coming up to the hour. If anyone has any maybe quick questions, they can put them in there. We might be able to cover one or two of them. But um, I did see one earlier, Ellen, uh, about testosterone. Any comments on testosterone and men and anxiety? Hmm. I feel like there must be more context to that question, but I think quick, no initial, testosterone. Yeah. quick initial thoughts on testosterone. I think we're in a moment right now. I mean, I don't want to leave us on a sort of anxiety provoking note, mm. but we are exposed to a lot of endocrine disruptors. Um, and I think that there are outstanding questions right now. We don't have the answers to, to um, relationship to even things like sun exposure, EMF exposure, cell phones and pockets. I think these are all ongoing areas of exploration, but we are seeing decreasing sperm count and decreasing testosterone levels. It's a fact. Mm. So um, I do think that it behooves us to make some strategic shifts around this. And that can be um, getting a healthy amount of sun exposure, something that feels safe for your body, your degree of melanation of your skin, your family history. Um, and then perhaps decreasing some of your exposure to plastics or pesticides um, and to all the various endocrine disruptors in our environment. But that's 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 a, a bit of a tricky pickle. Yeah. 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 Um, Michelle, if you have any questions uh, to ask Ellen before we go, and guys, just to show you Ellen's book again, The Anatomy of Anxiety, found in all good bookstores, I imagine, Ellen, and online, obviously. Yeah. And any uh, other way we can reach you or um, if somebody, do you do one-to-one -one calls? Do you offer coaching? Do you offer 
I'm sure and people you, would love to. And you have Instagram as well, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, I'm pretty active on Instagram. I'm at Ellen Vora MD. And starting in this winter, I will be doing some online groups. So I've, I'm in the process of trying to do more of a one-to-many approach where more people have access to these strategies. And I just want to express gratitude um, to the two of you for bearing your books and the work that you guys do. It's helping so many people. And as we described it earlier, decreasing human suffering and just a debt of gratitude to you guys for doing the work you do. And thank you so much for having me here. I'm honored. Thank well, you for thank joining. You. Imagine yeah. having a doctor like Dr. Vora. Wouldn't that wow. be fabulous? Could you imagine yeah. that being <laughs> your psychiatrist? What a difference. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I, I agree. All right. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for attending. Uh, It's great to have you here listening in as well. And again, we'll put the notes to Ellen's work, her website, everything, so that people can find that. Thank you, Ellen. Thanks, Michelle, for joining. And I hope to talk to you again soon, Ellen. I agree. Thank you both. And thank you all for being here. Take care. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to the D.A.R.E. podcast. The D.A.R.E. app has over 1 million downloads and is helping people all around the world to overcome anxiety and panic attacks. You can download the app for free at dareresponse.com.